HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. This week on Meet and 3, we continue our trade series with a piquant look at the many faces of the spice trade. From the high price tag of saffron to the ubiquity of chilies and the potential ripple effect that farmer protests in India may have on the global spice market. You know, farmers are, are protesting because they feel like their lives and livelihoods are on the line. You find it in a lot of cured foods, like cured meat and Parmesan cheese. Um, you also find it in ripening foods, like ripe tomatoes are very high in uh, MSG. So there's sources of it all over the natural world. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum, and I love to talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. If you're just tuning in for the first time, all the previous episodes can be found in the archives at heritageradionetwork.org. I'm thankful for listeners like you, and I'd love it if you'd leave me a review wherever you find this podcast. For those of you with kids at home, I'd like to be so bold as to suggest you check out my other podcast. Along with my co-host, Hannah Forden, the program manager here at HRN, we've created Time for Lunch, a fun, food-focused show for kids. We'd love it if you'd check it out wherever you get your podcasts. I'd like to remind listeners that Heritage Radio is a nonprofit, and we need your help to stay on the air. If you enjoy this show and listen to the other great podcasts we produce every week, please find your way to heritageradionetwork.org donate to make your gift. Today's theme, small food, big ideas. With the pandemic hopefully starting to wane and people being able to start going out again and visiting restaurants, what does the future look like? Over 100,000 restaurants have closed in the last 12 months in the United States. That's a lot of restaurants. But all of those culinary professionals are still out there. What are they going to do next? One avenue that's been open in recent years to folks wanting to get food ideas off the ground is a food truck or pop-up food events. There are a lot of reasons that this is appealing. It's a lower-cost barrier to entry, and you can be nimble to try out your ideas, see what the market thinks of your product, and adjust on the fly. Matt Cohen founded Off the Grid in 2010 to bring small food vendors together and support them in serving to large crowds in the Bay Area. Since then, Off the Grid has expanded to host many large outdoor events, provide catering services, incubate new businesses, and more. When the pandemic hit, they pivoted to continue serving meals to frontline workers, providing food for community relief related to COVID and the wildfires in California. They've also created Qbert, a modular, easily transported system for creating outdoor kitchen space for events and pop-ups. It's really neat stuff, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. I'm Matt Cohen. Uh, I'm the CEO of Off the Grid. Uh, and uh, the best way of explaining uh, Off the Grid is uh, it, it, previously, uh, these large community spaces uh, that are all over the Bay Area, uh, where uh, essentially we bring together amazing food uh, with uh, kind of local community experience and uh, create a extravaganza for people to be able to enjoy on a weekly basis, uh, typically. Uh, and uh, at our peak uh, before COVID, uh, we would see about 100,000 guests uh, at our various experiences a week. Um, mm. 
And so, uh, you know, that's obviously changed dramatically, but at our core, what Off the Grid is about is creating powerful community experiences uh, through uh, kind of programming interesting local food options. Got it. And so through that work, um, you know, I've been looking a lot at your site and your social media and stuff. Um, you know, you guys were doing kind of, I don't know, you know, I, I don't know if they're like food truck roundups would be accurate or mm-hmm. I guess outside food experiences. I guess not everybody who's attending them has like a food truck that drives around, right? Yeah, I think we're best known for beginning to work with food trucks and helping to kind of unlock a whole food truck community in the Bay Area. Uh, Off the Grid started in 2010, and at that time, uh, there were food trucks in the Bay Area, uh, but they tended toward uh, either uh, kind of traditional Mexican taco trucks uh, or uh, kind of lunch trucks. Mm. Um, and uh, when we started, uh, I was uh, I was helping to consult people and uh, started uh, basically uh, uh, with the first dozen or so kind of nouveau food trucks that were serving different types of cuisine. Uh, but one of the things that kind of evolved over the course of the 10 years of off the grid being around was this expansion into wanting to help facilitate uh, people who are doing pop-ups or creative food or emerging food businesses, uh, how to help to facilitate them to uh, get access to customers. Um, And so uh, our business kind of expanded as a result of that. Um, So uh, definitely synonymous with the food truck community in the Bay Area, but also kind of emerging food uh, in all different sorts of ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I I love the the fact that the I mean, the West Coast. I grew up in New York and lived in New York City for more than twenty years, and the relationship to uh, food trucks and street food in New York, I think, is very different than it is on the West Coast. I remember the first time I encountered like these parking lots full of various types of food trucks in Portland, and I know you have there are similar things in the Bay Area, and New York it just doesn't exist that way. New York is this like cutthroat thing where the trucks vie for space. And, you know, historically, I mean, back in the 90s, it was like you had the halal carts and you had the dirty water hot dog guys and you had the coffee carts with breakfast and pastries. And that was like it. And so like that was where it kind of came out of. But on the West Coast, it feels like um, earlier or to a larger extent than on the East Coast, even though it has happened to some extent on the East Coast, you had the opportunity to find all these different kinds of food and different influences. And it wasn't just kind of segmented into these very specific types like the taco trucks you talked about. Yeah. One of the interesting things I think about uh, street food in general is how, um, you know, the communities kind of get expressed regionally. Um, and that's a function of the demographics in the area, but it's also a kind of function of the the rules and regulations that are kind of mm, governing right. uh, how that can happen. Sure. And so, um, you know, where in New York, uh, real estate is obviously at such a premium. Uh, there's always been this kind of competition for how, how who who's going to be in that space and uh, where uh, the carts and, and, and uh, various different things that are being served out of where they can be parked. Um, so, uh, but I think what has kind of resulted in New York is because space is more of a premium, the carts and sidewalk space became more of a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, in Portland, for instance, um, there was less uh, stringent regulation around building standards. And so trailers became much more popular right. uh, that were stationary. Um, and and you kind of got, as a result, these parking lots that turned into these uh, kind of like, uh, like, uh, like food halls yep. uh, where uh, they were parked all the time and it was very low cost to be able to enter the space. Um, in the Bay Area, uh, because we have similar pressing, uh, pricing pressure around real estate, uh, food trucks became an interesting alternative, especially, uh, call it post-financial crisis, mm. 2008 to 2012, uh, became uh, a really interesting alternative for people who couldn't necessarily afford to get into uh, the brick-and-mortar uh, uh, restaurant space. And so uh, as a result, uh, there was this kind of proliferation, proliferation around um, really diverse cuisines uh, and uh, kind of emerging uh, food chefs uh, that uh, were really kind of uh, adapting to the environment and testing things out. Uh, that obviously evolved over time, but 
you know, one of the things that is kind of a function of the Bay Area and the high cost of doing business in the Bay Area is uh, that the stationary approach didn't really work quite as well. Mm. Uh, and there's also like really strong regulations around, say, going down to downtown San Francisco and parking every day. Yeah. And so what became more the kind of local flavor of, of the Bay Area was a highly mobile uh, food truck environment where the trucks were moving two, three times a day to different locations where they would kind of pop up and hmm. serve, uh, and, and way less stationary. Hmm. And, and was that then since I, I mean, I haven't, I, I lived in the Bay area a really long time ago. Um, was that then something where like, you just had to hope you caught them or, I mean, I have to assume that because yeah. of the Bay area that they were making use of things like social media to say, Hey, we're in the hate and we're going to be over in dog patch at two o'clock or whatever. Yeah. I'm really dating myself at this point, but, uh, I got into this, uh, before, uh, Twitter and using Twitter to locate, uh, yourself was really a thing. Hmm. So I, I remember very clearly in, uh, it right around the financial crisis. So, uh, 2007, 2008, uh, all of these people in uh, a whole variety of industries from technology to construction, uh, lost their jobs very quickly. And so there was um, this really uh, kind of free form uh, uh, bottom up kind of thing of people wanting to chase meaning, a more meaningful kind of profession that right. they connected with food. And so uh, they went out and actually started serving food illegally off of like homemade carts. Um, and so uh, the way that they would kind of announce where they were was Twitter at the time. And, uh, you know, it was, it was kind of an interesting time just in the sense of you had at, at its probably peak, there were, you know, 40, 50 of these kind of pop up home cooks that were going out and selling illegally to hundreds and hundreds of people that they would just pop up in a park. Um, one of the places where off the grid really played a role was um, there was really no formal place uh, at that time. The regulations were such that uh, food trucks or legal food carts needed to keep a certain distance away from each other in order to be able to legally permit themselves. Uh -huh. And so there was no real legal way to be able to group together. And that's really where off the grid played uh, the kind of uh, the, the, it was the most important starting point to OTG was being able to kind of unlock spaces where uh, different food vendors could come together and be able to serve food together. Mm. Got it. Um, and so that, you know, obviously like was a huge part of what you guys did and starting last March, large gatherings of people, uh, talking and <laughs> putting food in their mouths has not really been something that we've been, uh, able to do. So I would love to understand, like, how have you guys pivoted and changed what you do? I see on your site, I mean, it looks like you do a lot of, um, catering, event catering, corporate catering, which I assume also existed before COVID. Has that expanded? Um, yeah, so uh, off the grid uh, pre-COVID was really made up of, uh, in, in terms of the, the kind of event operations that we did, uh, we did public markets, third-party catering. So that's using third-party restaurants to be able to um, uh, kind of meet catering needs, uh, large-scale catering needs typically. Uh, so these would be like conferences, everything from conferences to birthday parties, basically. Um, and then we also uh, built a corporate dining program based on the same model of mobility. So um, the what happened after COVID is that um, almost immediately all of the catering uh, went away. Uh, it was uh, pretty profound and dramatic uh, that first week. Uh, essentially, our entire year's worth of business uh, got canceled, mm -hmm. um, and uh, you know, a, a pretty pretty traumatic for the business. Uh, and uh, and then at the same time, uh, we launched our tenth anniversary of our largest market in San Francisco was. Uh, going to be the best year we were ever going to have. Right. Uh, we were able to have one event. Uh, and then on that night, uh, the health department in San Francisco canceled uh, mass gatherings. And uh, and so what we the kind of position that we found ourselves in kind of immediately was, um, well, we have access to this uh, very large community of uh, food trucks, restaurants, 
uh, a kind of catering uh, different businesses, pop-ups, um, and they really had no place to go. Um, and at the same time, uh, we wanted to play a role uh, in uh, being a part of some sort of community response, but also just kind of at, at its most basic, we wanted to play a role in helping to sustain these businesses yeah. that we had worked with. Um, and so what ended up resulting is uh, at first we tried to kind of understand, well, you know, could we kind of reopen and do it safely uh, for public sale? Uh, but actually what uh, has been a more meaningful uh, thing for both our business and for the businesses we work with is all of what we've done in terms of emergency response mm. uh, and uh, and community relief associated with COVID, but also the wildfires and a variety of things. And so uh, that's where we've been investing a lot of our time over the course of the last year. And uh, it's been really fulfilling, uh, but quite a ch quite a change from uh, the traditional business that we were running before. Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting to me. I mean, you know, the restaurant industry and the food industry, you know, has a very long uh, history of helping those in need, right? I mean, hunger is a constant Absolutely. need, and and restaurateurs and the food industry, you know, do have done incredible work over the years. Um, but I feel like your uh, the. the the members or group or whatever you call them at off the grid have an incredible opportunity because when you have things like the wildfires that decimate a place and yep. whether it's the emergency responders or the people that need the help, you suddenly have this entire constituency of people who already have mobile kitchens. <laughs> And have exactly. an ability to just get in their truck and go there. Um, and that's, I mean, I, that's really incredible to be able to mobilize that. Uh, and it sounds like from the way you're describing it, that there has been a real opportunity to help those businesses, because I assume that there is, you know, that the businesses themselves are not being asked to donate 100% of their time and the food and gas no. and everything else. So. Yeah, so we first got involved in uh, emergency response in actually 2017 uh, with wildfires mm -hmm. uh, in Sonoma. And um, originally, we thought of uh, that type of uh, that type of community response um, as more of a kind of uh, donation based model. Um, I think exactly like what you're saying, there was this huge food community in the in San Francisco that had this a strong connection to the agricultural community in Sonoma, Napa. Right. And, and we just wanted to be able to get involved. Um, and uh, I think where that uh, played an initial role was, um, you know, in the middle of the crisis, uh, everyone's just kind of being scrappy, coming together to try and have an immediate impact for the first responders, the firefighters who were on the ground. I think what the discovery for us was, uh, even at that time, is that there was a longer term need about how, as those communities are rebuilding, how we could play a role in helping to stand up and support the local restaurants that maybe the community that they relied on that would come to their restaurant all the time uh, no longer had the neighborhood next to them that oh, all of their customers were coming from. So how could we help to channel resources to them to help uh, sustain them mm. while their community was being rebuilt? Um, so uh, what ha what has happened uh, over the course of COVID and also uh, another fire season that came through uh, California last year is that uh, where Off the Grid has really played a role is kind of connecting government funding sources to uh, being able to program these local restaurants to both uh, kind of serve that immediate need uh, but of, of the initial crisis, but also the kind of ongoing need and really pay attention to trying to uh, sustain communities 
and sustain restaurants through supporting their local their local uh, people who are at risk. Right. Um, and uh, that that's been really meaningful. But it also uh, it, it feels like um, you know we're we're really interested in supporting the entire community uh, rather than uh, a kind of approach of okay the emergency is over we're all going home. Um, and so uh, yeah, happy to talk more about that. But um, it, it's 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 been uh, it's it's been a nice surprise to be able to help in the in the way that we are uh, and continue building those programs. Yeah, I mean, I I would love to you know so it, it appears that uh, you know one of the big things you guys are doing there's a great photograph on your site um, of what look like doctors and nurses uh, yep. at a hospital lining up to a you know an array of food trucks and obviously we're all well aware that you know those frontline medical workers are working you know I mean doctors and nurses in ICUs and stuff worked insane hours before. And so I can't even quite imagine how difficult it is for those people at this point, um, yep. you know, but providing stuff to that. And it looks like you've worked to uh, deliver meals as well. So not necessarily just people coming to trucks, right? But there are meals that are prepared and then delivered um, in both San Jose and in San Francisco. Yeah, so um, where it's kind of, it, it's been this journey of uh, transforming what used to be these in-person experiences around food to trying to translate that mm -hmm. uh, to a very different type of experience. So um, we have worked uh, pretty extensively in terms of uh, helping to support hospital workers, uh, either uh, because of the long hours they're working, or because they're uh, because they're on short shifts, or whatever whatever that uh, the kind of needs were, but to kind of raise morale. Um, but I think more broadly, uh, if the people who are most at risk around COVID are uh, people who are older uh, or people who are immunocompromised, um, and there's actual uh, like uh, like deadly risks associated with them going outside. And so uh, a number of different uh, cities in the Bay Area have put together different programs to try and limit the needs for them to go outside. And so uh, what Off the Grid has done is uh, we actually arrange for three meals a day uh, to be delivered to people's homes. Uh, and then it can be reheated uh, and cooked um, it, it, we also do grocery delivery programs where uh, people are getting a box of uh, local produce uh, delivered that's enough food for uh, a person for a week mm. to be able to cook themselves. Um, and uh, we are responsible for uh, both the kind of making sure that the food arrives safely uh, and making sure that they're getting the cuisine type that they're choosing. Uh, but also making sure that the restaurants get paid in a timely way so that they can maintain their staff uh, and uh, continue to to do the other things that they want to be doing about getting back on their feet. Um, yeah, I mean, it's really, it's uh, it's incredible. So do you think, I mean, obviously I imagine that the goal is that once enough of us have our vaccines and once the uh you know the powers that be open things back up and everybody feels safe going out again and, and i imagine with the outdoor events that you host um you know i i think about myself often and sort of like what is the you know what is the end game of all of this look like for me and i don't feel like you know sitting inside a tiny cramped restaurant with 20 other people shoulder to shoulder is a place that i'm going to really feel comfortable and have like a great dining experience anytime soon yeah. uh but going outside in, in a park and walking around and like being able to be out in the sun and go to different food trucks sounds exactly like what I want. So I, you know, I imagine you guys are hoping to return to that as soon as possible. Yeah. I mean, I think we, we have our largest events right now. Uh, we're, we're actually not planning on bringing back, uh, in 2021, mm -hmm. uh, but our more community oriented events where it is more like a handful of trucks and, it's let it, it's less people that would be in attendance so with that we can provide social distancing yep. we are excited to be able to bring back as the summer comes along and as we're able to do it you know i think one of the aspects of this whole experience has been the uncertainty of when will the vaccines get distributed yeah. and when what are the thresholds for you know where it's okay to 
be able to have people uh, in closer proximity to each other. Um, one of the things about OTG and our public events that I've always you know, taken a lot of pride in is they're free to be able to get in uh, and they're really we're wanting to be accessible to as much of the the community uh, that is around us as possible mm. um and so you know one of the challenges with that is it's a little bit harder to regulate how many people are in the space um and uh typically you know in the bay area uh each truck that's there wants to see about a hundred customers during that time period and so um they are large gatherings and so we're we're trying to be thoughtful about the way that we bring people back together but you're absolutely right in the sense that we want to be able to open access to opportunities for the restaurants the food trucks that work with us uh and it seems like outdoor dining is going to be a good first step for that do you think that uh the sort of um, relief efforts or efforts towards providing emergency food will those things do you think continue in the same way that they're operating now yeah i mean um it, it it's it's sad to say this uh but the uh, emergencies uh just are kind of a, a part of our lives yeah. um and so you know even you know we're we're talking the end of january right now right uh th this huge rainstorm came through mm -hmm. california uh and uh the fire affected areas from earlier last year right. um landslides happened yeah. and so uh we're feeding 200 people a day uh right now uh as a result of that in the santa cruz area so i think it will stay a part of what we're doing i think um you know it feels really meaningful and like we're contributing something that's really valuable to both the people who are impacted uh but also the 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 restaurants feel so meaningful about being able to participate in it we will continue doing it even once uh even once we're able to come back with our our more traditional business This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. So I want to switch gears for a second and uh, talk a little bit about your personal history. You grew up in Denver. Yes. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, Claim Denver, love Denver, uh, and uh, I miss it. Uh, but I've been in the Bay Area for about 20 years now. Got it. Um, do you have a memory of the first time you visited what we now call a food truck? Um, so uh, I, I, I actually... I, my closest connection and where uh, I got the the most meaningful connection to street food was when I moved to Japan uh, and I was uh, you know about 20 years old uh, and uh, and had never experienced street food really uh, in a meaningful way uh, and uh, my time in Japan kind of opened my eyes to this kind of very informal, uh, offering of these diverse choices that were super delicious and inexpensive. And, and that's really, you know, I think where it, it started resonating for me more so than, 
you know, having a, a food truck that uh, I grew up next to. Right. I, I often imagine I've I've been to Japan, uh, I don't know, seven or eight times in the last 10 years. And I marvel at a lot of, I mean, obviously there are so many things that are amazing about the way that things operate in Japan. And I find them very compelling and would love to spend a longer chunk of time than like two weeks at a clip there. That's um, yeah, great. But the street food thing is so interesting to me because you're right. I mean, there's a huge variety. Um, it exists seemingly, I mean, restaurants as well in Japan just exist in a world that is so different than they are here. And I've talked about this on this show with various people I've interviewed before, but like the way that they're regulated is so different. And mm-hmm. it seems like people just in Japan, like if you have an idea and a little bit of space, you can kind of just do it. Just open up. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and and the the building regulations are a little bit different. And the permitting uh, regulations are very different, which Japan's a very bureaucratic place. Right. But uh, some, somehow <laughs> for food, uh, it's incredibly cheap uh, to be able to open uh, a, a small restaurant uh, and be able to start serving something, yeah. um, which is pretty incredible. Yeah. I also, you know, I've always been amazed. I, re- I remember very clearly my first trip to Japan. I had like a, I had like an afternoon off in Tokyo and I just went wandering around and went to one of the market districts, Akuta ago maybe i don't remember where i was and i remember i got uh i got a tray of uh takoyaki mm-hmm. and i was standing there eating and i and i because i'm a new yorker i you know in new york you walk and eat at the same time and yeah. i started walking through the market eating and then like people were kind of giving me weird looks and not just because <laughs> i was an american and i like stopped like halfway through eating the eight takoyaki or whatever was in the little boat I was carrying. And I looked around and I realized that nobody else was eating and walking. Yep. And that everyone yeah. else had been, and, and everyone else had been standing right next to the stall where they'd bought the thing and ate it really fast, or they had covered it with another boat and taken it with them to somewhere else to eat. But nobody was like walking around eating the way we do in the U S yeah. My, uh, my favorite, uh, street food, uh, from Japan, uh, it was actually, uh, ramen stalls in Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, it, it is so different, right. Where, you know, if you grab something here, people eat it on the go. Uh, and there, it, you know, you do sit and you, it, even if you're outside and it's cold, uh, you sit and you eat your bowl of ramen, uh, and, uh, and, and, most of the time, you know, the chef, uh, yeah. and, uh, it is, it is a different experience. Uh, and, and, uh, yeah, you gotta be careful about, about eating on the go there, you get some stairs. Some- yeah, <laughs> for sure. So, uh, so street ramen in Japan, uh, and then when you returned, you actually had your own ramen pop-up. Was it based around the idea? I mean, did you have people like sitting on milk crates outside eating ramen? Yeah. So, um, I lived in southern Japan uh, near a city called Fukuoka that's famous for tonkotsu ramen. Um, and uh, this was, uh, you know, uh, in the early 2000s, mid 2000s. Um, and when I got back to the States, uh, there wasn't any good ramen. Um, and I think like a lot of people that get into the food business, uh, they, it's done by saying, I really want something that I want to, I basically want to eat myself. Totally. Uh, I mean, I I can feel the salt and shochu hangover right now. Oh yeah. Thinking about eating tonkatsu ramen in Fukuoka. A lot of, a lot of good experiences there. Um, and so, um, you know, I, it started actually with a pop-up, um, and, uh, we, uh, found a coffee shop in San Francisco. Uh, I had been, uh, I did a stint as a, a corporate employee in hotels and, uh, wanted to do something different. And, uh, and so I found a coffee shop and, uh, and we did a pop-up and, 2006. Uh, and, uh, it was just as this website called Yelp was kind of emerging and, uh, it got popular, uh, and, uh, and then, uh, I did it for about, uh, nine months and, uh, realized that lugging an entire kitchen around everywhere you go, uh, wasn't necessarily the way that I wanted to build my restaurant. Um, and so, uh, that's at the point where I got really interested in mobile food, mm. uh, and learned how to do the permitting around mobile food, uh, and ultimately helped a lot of people open their own, uh, their own mobile food trucks. Got it. Got it. Um, is there a 
street food that you have had overseas that is not currently available in the U.S. that you've seen that you wish somebody would do? Um, I, well, so um, so okonomiyaki is available, um, but okonomiyaki, uh, like it's done in Japan, uh, is I would say uh, just uh, something that's open on the horizon and waiting for someone entrepreneurial to come around totally. uh, and do well. Um, I don't know if you're an okonomiyaki fan. I'm with uh, you. My very first meal in Osaka when I like within an hour of getting off the airplane, a friend took me to like a basement. To, uh, yeah, and they, 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 in Osaka, they're famous for putting the cabbage on the top of the okonomiyaki. Yep, uh, and it kind of bakes down into this delicious crunchiness. Uh, so yeah, I I I, I, I know it uh, and and appreciate it, and it's so good. And you know, it can be taken on the go, or you sit and you cook it yourself. Uh, it seems like there's a there's an opportunity for something like that, uh, it, but uh, I haven't I haven't really seen it done uh in any meaningful way in the states uh at least here in the bay area right yeah i mean i i have had it on many menus in the states but it's never been quite the same um mm -hmm. i feel like it's either been just like fine you know like it's sort of mm -hmm. like an appetizer that shows up on a japanese menu here and there um yep. or it's this like weird like elevated thing that takes yep. it out of the context of like sitting in a basement with a pitcher of cold beer after getting off a 14 hour flight and it being mm. like the most delicious thing you've ever eaten for many reasons that are contextual to sitting there. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things about Japanese cuisine is for people who haven't been to Japan, uh, it's hard to kind of understand, but like in Japan, uh, you, Japanese menus in the States, you know, you, you have yakitori, you have sushi, you have uh, noodles, you have ramen, you have soba, all on one menu. Um, and in Japan, people make their lives about just one narrow aspect of that thing. Right. Um, and that's what makes it so special in a lot of ways is that you have your, your soba guy who has just been making soba for 40 years every single day doing the same thing, just perfecting that craft. Um, and so the same is, is really true for okonomiyaki. It, you know, it, 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 when it gets merged into the rest of that menu, sometimes it, it feels like a bit of an afterthought uh, and uh, it shouldn't be. Totally. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, the I can, as you're saying that, I can like, I have memory of an incredible uh, udon meal that I had in Kyoto at a place that I can like see in my mind and I can taste the udon and like I remember all of the aspects of the meal. Um, and I can't say the same for any udon that I've ever eaten in the United States. Oh, so good. Make me hungry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so before the show, I sent you some some questions and one of them was about the first thing you learned to cook and your answer was cookies. Yeah. Um, tell me about the cookies that were the first thing you learned to cook. My, uh, so I, uh, I grew up and my mom owned a bakery. Uh, it was a mail order bakery, uh, called Miss Grace Lemon Cake, uh, company. And so, uh, they were famous or well known for their lemon bunk cakes. Mm. Uh, but growing up, uh, as I'm, uh, whatever, a five-year-old, uh, rolling through the bakery, uh, I always used to, uh, go and raid the walk-in fridge that had all the chocolate chip cookies. Ah. Um, and so all the frozen chocolate chip cookies that were ready to be baked. Um, and so uh, I, that is the first thing uh, that I really learned to cook, uh, mainly so my mom could teach me uh, that I should stop raiding the cookies because people worked really hard to make them. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. Um, do yeah. you still make those cookies? Uh, I, I still, I, I, I've changed it a little bit. Uh, I, I add, I add a little bit of salt, uh, sea salt to it now. Uh, but they're still basically the same cookie. Yeah. Nice. Mm -hmm. Nice. I love yeah. it. Um, yeah. so I want to talk about something else that you guys have done at off the grid. So aside from hosting these markets and helping, uh, you know, helping give a, a place and a voice to these kind of these food trucks or these small food businesses, there's two other things that I'm really interested in, um, that you guys do. You have a, a sort of incubator program. Yep. So uh, we started an incubator program with our corporate dining program 
uh, called Instructional, uh, S-T-R-U-C-K, uh, Instructional. Mm. Um, and uh, the intent was uh, to try and add a sense of uh, entrepreneurial energy uh, to our corporate dining program when so often in a corporate dining setting, it can it can feel like uh, it's a it's just someone serving a plate of food. Um, and so uh, I think uh, we've had uh, just about a dozen entrepreneurs uh, over the years uh, graduate from the program. Uh, and, you know, it, it's not necessarily that all the entrepreneurs over time decide they want to open a mobile food truck, but it really does provide an avenue for uh, food entrepreneurs to be able to think differently about, oh, I don't necessarily need a restaurant. Maybe I want to do corporate dining myself. Maybe I want to just do a ghost kitchen and, and do catering. Mm. Um, so there's been a lot of uh, interesting outcomes that have come from it. Mm. Cool. And then the other one is a project called Cubert, which when yep. I first saw, of course, being a you know being a, about the same age as you and a child of the '80s, made me think of an awesome arcade game that I don't know yep. if younger people will even know about Cubert. Uh, yours is spelled a little bit different, more like a cube, like a six-sided uh, object. Um, yep. But so tell me about Cubert. So Cubert uh, uh, basically came from uh, the realization one day. Uh, that, um, you know, food trucks really are, uh, is going to be uh, self-evident and obvious, but uh, it, 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 it's an automobile mm -hmm. uh, and a kitchen. <laughs> right. um, and, um, and those two things don't necessarily need to be together in order to allow people to be able to serve food and cook food. Um, sure. And, and, so, and in some cases, I mean, I used to do a lot of work in uh, large event spaces like the Javits Center in New York or the Moscone Center in San Francisco around food and other large events. And you can't actually drive a food truck into those buildings. Exactly. There are all of these... There are all these nooks and crannies and spaces where, you know, a 20 foot truck doesn't fit. Yeah. Right. Um, and so uh, we started uh, thinking about uh, a kitchen space that was mobile, that off the grid could move around. We move it with a forklift. It's a eight foot by eight foot by nine foot tall structure that we get uh, actual kitchens that are installed inside of them. Uh, that people uh, can, uh, it functions the same way as a, it's actually closer to a restaurant kitchen than it is a food truck kitchen. Mm. Um, and it's permitted the same way as a food truck. Um, sure, and so it's temporary, I guess, is the reason. Uh, right? Yeah. I mean, so the, the reason why that's important is, uh, and, and if you think about it, your local farm, your local farmer's market, the people operating under a tent, those kitchens can change all the time. And so the permitting costs are much higher, mm. uh, for a food truck, uh, wherever that food truck goes, it's the same kitchen. And so they don't need to get repermitted every new location where they go. Right. So. There's a, there's a lot of power in that idea, uh, just in terms of being able to unlock mobility for people. Um, and so Qbert does the same thing. Uh, it's just that off the grid is there to be able to support it, to move it around, uh, be able to there be there to support it, to clean the water and provide fresh water for the hand-washing sinks and everything that's built inside of it. Um, and the, the kind of general idea is that, you know, people could have these units and uh, support them uh, through a commissary kitchen the same way that typically uh, they're supporting a food truck or something like that, but they could fit into more unusual spaces and property owners could think about activating their outdoor space uh, in ways that weren't available to them with uh, thinking about an automobile or something like that. Right. And and it seems to me like it's a great opportunity for, say, uh, you know, like a, a brewery or a winery, right, that maybe only has the foot traffic to support having some kind of food activation on the weekends, but doesn't want to invest in a full structure uh, because of potential permitting issues or plumbing or whatever else it is. And uh, and also would not want to invest for those reasons in like a mobile unit, because if they only need it in one place every two days, why would they put it on wheels and make it also a vehicle? Yeah, actually, um, you know, because of COVID, a lot of uh, the interest that we've had for Qbert have been uh, restaurants that want to that, that want a satellite kitchen hmm. for activating 
the space is just outside their restaurant. Right. Um, and so they can have, uh, you know, places to keep food warm uh, and or be able to be cooking outside and not necessarily have to activate their entire kitchen inside. Um, and so, yeah, that idea of a, of a brewery that just wants uh, something to be able to support it, but don't necessarily want to build out a full kitchen in order to be able to meet that need. It's exactly that type of use. That's super cool. Uh, I love it. I want to, I want, like, I can't wait for Qbert to make, to make it to the East coast. <laughs> Well, uh, we're, we're excited to begin uh, expanding where uh, it's going. Um, and so uh, we've been working. Uh, we have a, a, an event unit where you cook out of the back of it. And then uh, we have a couple different versions, like a coffee shop version where there's espresso machines that are built in and then uh, one to be able to cook out of. So we're excited to be able to expand it and see where it goes in the future. Very cool. And then the other thing is, I assume that because it's built on sort of these, like, you know, it's built with like fork pods for standard forklift and stuff, that transport and shipping, uh, either nationally or even internationally, should be really easy. Yeah, um, we we it's able to be shipped in a really straightforward way uh, wherever we want to go, and uh, and then you know when people receive it, they can just use a standard forklift to be able to place it, and so uh, it is it is pretty straightforward to be able to get uh, wherever anybody would want to take it. Very cool. Yeah, very very excited and excited to know about it and to to share it with some other folks that I know. Yeah, I think um, it's one of these things that as people begin. Uh, I, I like the expression dabbling in the food space, <laughs> sure. you know, like they have an idea and they're trying to explore it. We're excited about uh, Qbert being an avenue where they can kind of get started working in a space and then be able to grow into other spaces once they uh, develop customers and, and kind of go from there. Cool. Um, so I wanted to ask just a little bit. I I love San Francisco. I love the Bay Area. Um, I you know usually I get out there a couple times a year, but obviously it's been it's been since 2019 since I was uh, out there because I didn't go anywhere last year uh, for the most mm. part after after March. Um, and I wanted to kind of just see how you're feeling, um, you know, with what's happened uh, in the world with. Uh, COVID-19 and and San Francisco as a city, um, especially from the food scene. I mean, obviously, uh, all over the country, not just in cities, restaurants are having a really hard go of it, and people are lamenting the closures of a lot of different places. Um, and I wondered if there was anywhere that you wanted to kind of uh, remember or call out for doing great work or, uh, you know, even, even places that have started during this time. Um, yeah, I mean, I think... Um the so uh, th there's a landmark in san francisco uh it never served particularly great food uh but uh it, it, it i think it was really meaningful for me because uh it just connect it had this historical connection to san francisco's history uh called the cliff house yep. um that uh there it was uh publicized recently that um they it's going to be shut down um, and, uh, you know, it, it, it kind of, uh, for those who haven't been there, it's, uh, overlooking this bluff, uh, of the Pacific ocean and ocean beach in San Francisco. Uh, and it's just a beautiful place and really iconic. Um, I think for me, that was the, the kind of, um, emblematic of the, of, of a lot of the san francisco dining scene mm. um you know a, a tremendous amount of places have gone out of business um and uh the shift to takeout and mostly delivery platforms uh, i think has been uh, a hard transition for an incredible amount of restaurants um and you know the cliff house is just uh, i think a, a prime example of that was all based on going to that place uh and they just weren't able to make that change um, I think what's really interesting, though, right now is there is this um, kind of rumbling underneath the surface uh, around people making food from their homes uh, and uh, using the, the cottage food law that was enacted a few years ago in California mm -hmm. um, to be able to do things that they wouldn't have been able to do in the past. So uh, there's a bread and pickle place where they're fermenting uh, their own pickles and, and bread and, and you can, they, they serve a certain small amount. There's a Basque cheese place, a, ba a Basque cheesecake uh, pop-up oh, that wow. has kind of exploded 
uh, and uh, it's kind of a Japanese style Basque cheesecake uh, called Basaku. Uh, and, uh, it, you know, it's, it's really exciting to see these kind of emerging ideas uh, and how they're evolving in this new space. Um, and I'm excited to be able to see what comes of it. Um, and so, you know, those would be the ones that I would call out. Uh, I, I would say San Francisco will gladly welcome you back. And, uh, and any time that it does, you should go to the Buena Vista uh, for an Irish coffee uh, because uh, it is uh, a special place in San Francisco. Have you been there? Uh, I haven't ever actually been there, no. I mean, I know about it, but I've never been there. It's 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 worth going to uh, just as a San Francisco experience, uh, and they're still uh, serving Irish coffees to go, and oh, so cool. uh, yeah, uh, excited for them to be able to continue their journey. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, for for me, like one of the most iconic places I can think of in San Francisco is like Swan Oyster. Sure, um, I'm. I'm a, I mean, for it's it's a little bit outside of San Francisco proper, but uh, Tamales Bay, I feel mm. like, is one of the most special places in the country and yeah. the world, really. Um, and uh, the oysters there, uh, you know, whether whether you know, it, I, I I like the Marshall Store, uh, but yep. you know, Tamales Bay Oyster Company and so many different places. Uh, it, it's it's worthwhile to take an adventure up there. Uh, but Swan in 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 San Francisco just for fresh seafood is uh so amazing. Yeah, and the kind of like the the old school like kind of like yeah. gruff counter service. Um, yep. you know, my wife and I the other day were just talking about uh, you know, talking about uh, the Grand Central Oyster Bar in New York. Um, you know, which is a different scale than Swan Oyster, but also has a similar kind of like, you know, there's like a gruff like lunch counter vibe. Obviously at, at Grand Central, it's influenced by or was influenced by being in a train station. Um, I have no idea. I mean, I mean, I assume that they will be back and, and will open back up eventually um, as such an iconic space. But it's just that kind of like gruff old school restaurant that's like not a, you don't you don't find that anymore in a lot of places. Well, and everyone at Swans is, uh, they're all the, the same family. Uh, <laughs> you know, there's like 11 of them back there and they're all the same family. Uh, and, uh, there's a gruffness to it, but there's also, a, you know, a, 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 like a warmth to it as well. Oh, sure. Um, yeah. and you know, and, and, and I think it's that, you know, the mixture of those two things of like, Hey, there's a line behind you. Like you can't stay here forever. Uh, but at the same time, like, you know, wanting to be knowledgeable and tell you about the fish that you're about to eat. Yep. Uh, that's really special. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, well, Matt, it's been a real pleasure to chat today. Thank you uh, very much uh, for wanting to learn more about OTG. Thanks for listening to Feast Your Ears today. You can follow Matt at Off the Grid SF and find out more on Off the Grid's website, offthegrid.com. You can find Feast Your Ears, as well as lots of other great shows, at heritageradionetwork.org, on iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please reach out if you have any questions. You can reach me via email, harry at thebrooklynkitchen.com, and you can follow me on Instagram at thefoodballer. Feast Your Ears is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.